الجزيرة بودكاست Protests, death sentences, international condemnation and more sanctions. You know, events in Iran are getting a lot of attention these days and not always for the right reasons. You see, we're at the point where rights groups say authorities are on a killing spree. everyone and welcome to Essential Middle East Podcast. I'm Sami Zaydan. According to Iran's state-run news agency, the government has executed a dual British-Iranian national by hanging for allegedly providing intelligence to the United Kingdom. Ali Reza Akbari served as Deputy Defense Minister for Iran under the country's former president, Mohammad Khatami, until the year 2001. Well, Akbari's execution was met with international outrage. He's not the only one. The UN says four others have been executed and 17 others have been given death sentences. That's, of course, on top of those killed in connection with protests. Human Rights Watch says security forces have killed hundreds, including 52 children. Now, Western countries, including the US and the EU, have denounced the trials and the death sentences as flawed. The State Department condemned Iran for what it said were the sham trials and the execution of two men who took part in anti-government demonstrations. And as you know, demonstrations kicked off after the death of a woman named Mahsa Amini. You probably remember she was detained for violating the dress code. Deadly protests after the death of a young Iranian woman while in the custody of the morality police, accused of improperly wearing her headscarf. Now, we wanted to give you first-hand reporting from Tehran, but we couldn't do a live interview because of the internet access issues going on there right now. So, we asked Maziar Mu'atamadi, he's an Al Jazeera English online correspondent in Tehran, to send us a few recorded answers about the recent executions. We started by asking Maziar, who's been arrested? The authorities say most of these people have been released, but a lot of people remain incarcerated still. And in addition to average protesters, many of whom are young people, Gen Z, a lot of others, including musicians and actors and footballers and even attorneys have been arrested. And he gave us some details about what happens after an arrest. After you're arrested is that you're taken to prison for many the Evin prison in Tehran and you're interrogated by members of the intelligence and security apparatus. And if they decide after a while that you're not being released imminently, then you'll be kept there and there will be court sessions. We also asked Maziar which courts are handling the cases right now. These are not public courts, and the details of many of which don't come out. Only some of the details of some of the more high-profile cases that often lead to execution or long-term prison sentences are publicized partially by the news outlets of the judiciary. After a few court sessions are held or the sessions are concluded altogether and a sentence has been issued, then the news outlet of the judiciary and other state-affiliated news outlets publicize some of the details of the cases and these often include some images or videos of the court sessions 
And sometimes the defendants are seen confessing to the crimes that the state alleges they committed. And this is where some of the families of the defendants and some human rights organizations call this process sham trials because they say that the defendants sometimes don't have access to attorneys and sometimes they're forced to confess to crimes that they haven't committed. Let's discuss all of this now with our guest. Hello, my name is Tara Sepehrifar. I'm a senior researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, and I'm joining you from Washington, D.C. So let's start, Tara, with Ali Reza Akbari's execution. That's kind of the latest case that's getting a lot of attention. But his case is a little different, of course, from the executions of people connected with protests. He was arrested and accused of spying back in 2019, right? Exactly. Unfortunately, Iranian authorities carry out executions for various charges, including several nonviolent charges. The case of Barry seems different from the case of the protesters. At Human Rights Watch, we oppose death penalty in all circumstances. But our understanding is that that case was more related to political infighting within the establishment as well as, of course, the international dimension of it, given that he was accused of espionage for the UK government. But of course, his execution added to the wave of executions that have been part of government's brutal response to the protests. Hang on a second. When you say wave, the UN said they counted four. The last statement I saw from the UN dated January 10th, right? That is correct. Iranian authorities so far have carried out four executions on protest-related charges. And it's important to mention that domestic and international outcry Mm. has slowed down the pace of executions, but people were at imminent risk Mm. and dozens more face charges that can end up carrying the death penalty. All right. Is there something for us to say about the timing, though? Is it a complete coincidence that Akbari was executed around this time when we've got the protests going on, when we've got at least four other people have been executed and so on? I don't think we can call it a coincidence. Usually, and this is very sad to call it usual, but Iranian authorities have done this during previous waves of protests they try to respond to popular demands and popular unrest with measures that they believe signifies a show of force and being in control. And the central narrative about the protests has always been about foreign involvement. You're always looking for ways to portray protests as either connected to foreign powers or being encouraged by them. And as the wave of international response and condemnation escalates, they do use dual and foreign nationals as bargaining in diplomatic disputes that they have. The UK has called the execution of a British Iranian national in Tehran callous and cowardly. So they're kind of sending a message by executing Akbari right now? Unfortunately, they are very untransparent about their judicial process. In the case of Akbari, his family spoke out pretty late in the process, but they shared crucial information that showed that he was also deprived of a fair trial. 
So it's very difficult for us to know exactly what happened in these cases and what leads to the timing as well as the process of execution. Mm. But I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that the timing is not a coincidence. This is what the authorities say. He was accused of passing information to British intelligence about top Iranian officials, about a top scientist who was killed in 2020. And hey, many countries have the death penalty for spying, including the US. Why has there been such an international reaction over this case? Is it human rights or politics? Let's be clear. In the case of Iran, because of the geopolitical dimensions of countries' relationship with the West, there's always politics. Mm. But that should not take away from the unfair nature of the judicial process in Iran. How was it unfair? Maybe that's a good point to elaborate on. First and foremost, authorities have intentionally kept the charge of espionage and its definition and evidence extremely vague. We have had dual and foreign nationals as well as Iranian nationals being accused of espionage charges with no clear definition of what information and what kind of relationship with foreign government would count as espionage versus a normal exchange of information, which is part of the routine process of international affairs. Secondly, in majority of the cases that are facing national security charges, authorities deprive the defendants from access to lawyer of their own choice during the investigative process, as well as during the trial process. There are usually videos recorded of defendants. There were videos circulated by the authorities showing kind of a confession, but there was also video circulating on BBC Persia saying that he was forced to make a confession for spying. Exactly. That has become a pattern. We have the case of other people who have been accused of cooperating with hostile government, espionage or passing information to foreign governments who have been acquitted by the system and have moved outside the country and have told media the horrendous stories of how they were tortured and put under pressure to make coerced confessions and how they were caught in the infighting between different intelligence apparatus inside the country that were competing for proving their own narrative. The core issue here is a lack of transparency, lack of fair trial, and a judicial system that has become less and less independent and a tool for intelligence apparatus in Iran. All right, I want to pick up on a point which you mentioned earlier, and that is the idea of score settling between rival factions. Again, yet another testimony of the unfairness of the judicial system. There's nothing about delivering justice when security charges can be brought against people for political infighting, for sending a message to the West, for punishing peaceful dissent. And it's actually interesting to see the type of people who get caught in this system. Those who tend to be more connected to the system, perhaps trust that they can navigate the complexities of the system. For instance, in the case of Mr. Akbari, media and human rights group found out about the charges and the unfair trial process pretty late. But they also end up being a victim of the system. All right, but does it tell us anything about 
the direction, the thinking of those in power right now towards reformists, towards those seen as close to reformists? So I think if we look at the trajectory and the trend over the past 10, 20 years, you see the rise of power of non-elected offices, intelligence-related offices, IRGC-related offices, and quote-unquote hardliners. And their effort led by Ayatollah Khamenei to close any opportunity for domestic reform. Let's not forget the presidential election of Rahim Raisi and how they went about disqualifying even the spokesperson for the parliament, Larijani, who by you can't imagine by any stretch to be an outsider of the system. So the circle's getting smaller. They're closing ranks and the circle's getting smaller. Yes, and it's astonishing how much smaller they think it can get. And their view of governance has been to have people close to them who are 100% loyal, yet they're struggling to basically perform some of the most basic function of governance in terms of controlling inflation, managing economy, environmental crisis, social services. And they have put all their focus on keeping their repressive apparatus and keeping people who are 100% loyal to them. All right, let me jump in because this is what the authorities have a very different perspective on this. They would argue, look, the execution of Akbari, the execution of people who were connected with violent acts connected to protests, this shows that there is law and order. And whoever you are, if you do something wrong and you get caught, you're going to be punished. They've circulated videos showing people like Colonel Hassan Yusufi bleeding from the head, people like Colonel Nader who was stabbed to death, we're told, and saying, these are not protesters. The people who are being executed were people who committed dreadful acts of violence. Is that part of the story missing from the narrative? So I think the way to go about this, and if... Iranian authorities want to take a principled approach to this is to carry out independent investigation because time and time again, they have failed to carry out any kind of impartial investigation. But even if they don't allow for independent investigation, they should embark on an impartial and transparent investigation into the killings that happened during the protests. Human rights groups are investigating the death of more than 500 people. That includes between 50 to 60 security officers as well. I don't think any human rights group is saying that wrongful death of any individual, be it from the security officers or protesters, should go unanswered. But in a situation that they have not taken responsibility for a single death, they have not acknowledged nor have they investigated mountain of evidence that journalists and human rights groups are putting forward about authorities' use of excessive force against protesters. Mm -hmm. And yet they're moving forward with handing down death sentences in trials. The UN's human rights body is debating whether to launch an investigation into Iran's brutal crackdown against anti-regime protest. The UN human rights chief, Volker Turk, he called it the weaponization of criminal procedures to punish people for exercising their basic rights. And I think that's correct. And we talk a lot about international condemnation and they matter, but we shouldn't forget that 
some of the most effective condemnations are the ones that are coming from inside the country and from people who are religious legal scholars, lawyers, journalists, people who worked in the system and are explaining to the public with the hope that they could put pressure on the judiciary and intelligence that this is not the way to hold anyone accountable. How independent is the judiciary? How independent are judges? Most of these cases that we're talking about, that are national security cases, are handled by Iran's revolutionary court. That was established after the 79 revolution to deal with these type of cases. And there are a handful of judges. We know their names. They have been handling these cases for two decades. Same handful of people for two decades? Yes, the most well-known judge, Abul Qasem Salabati, was in charge of the 2009 trials, has been in charge of the trials in Tehran, for instance, for the revolutionary, one of the main judges in Tehran, and also right now. And we have dozens and dozens of anecdotes from people who appeared before him and the way he treats defendants. Do not allow them to explain their defense. Most importantly, he does not like allowing appointed lawyers to the courtroom. And that's what has happened. These people are being sentenced to death without having an elected lawyer present to defend them. And some of the harshest criticism has come from inside the country, from a religious scholar, Mohsen Borhani, a university professor, who has been trying to explain to authorities that the charge of muharabe and, and corruption on earth did not intend to be this broad and include Acts such as injuring a security officer, closing a street, destruction of public property, arson. For instance, the two people who were executed more recently were accused of participating in the killing of a security officer in Karaj. Five people got the death sentence in the beginning after domestic and international pressure. Three of them has been halted and are going through retrial. That's a really interesting point that you mentioned there about the role of international pressure. But you know what? Let's take a break now. When we come back, we'll get back into it from that perspective. This week on The Take, we're celebrating our 500th episode. Yay! And we're talking to one of the most celebrated journalists in the world, Nobel Prize winner Maria Ressa about the state of journalism, good and bad, and what's new with the news. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Tara, you were mentioning a case where some executions were actually halted because of international pressure. I said domestic and international, and I think that's important to keep in mind. We often tend to pay more attention to the international coverage for obvious reasons where we are, and they're important because they serve as a reminder if they are truly multilateral, they can create pressure on Iranian authorities at the international scene. But let's not forget there are people inside the country, despite 
Severe restrictions are playing a crucial role in spreading information, raising these issues, and doing their best to slow down the cases of human rights violations. I want to remember two journalists. Both of them worked for domestic papers, and when. The death sentences started being reported. They went to families and started reporting about these cases in domestic media, talking to families, talking to lawyers, trying to bring out all these issues we're talking about. And we do rely on them and their information as well as independently verifying our own facts. As well as backing sanctions, European politicians have also begun sponsoring Iranian political prisoners. They hope to prevent Iranian judges from handing down harsh sentences, including the death penalty. What should the international community do? We've had sanctions from the US, the EU have put several rounds of sanctions over this issue of executions. Correct, and sanctions can send a strong message, but they're not going to be the answer to the human rights crisis we're dealing with. They've never been; they're not going to be enough and sufficient. So, what is the answer? I think the answer is having principled approach to this issue, which requires more medium and long-term thinking that takes into account strong international response that includes targeted human rights sanctions, diplomatic pressure that doesn't only come from the West; it comes from global South leaders who want to stand up for human rights. Also, it takes into account the fact that Iranians are the ones who are the agents of change. So, supporting them, empowering them. Preventing not taking actions that further marginalize Iranians are also important. Is the international community visibly not taking a principled approach? Is this politicized? I mean, for people familiar in this part of the world with what happened during the Arab Spring, when one of the Arab world's most populous governments had its democratically elected government. Overthrown in a coup, we didn't see this level of sanctions against the new Egyptian government that arose from that mess. I'm very glad you raised the case of Egypt, and I think Egypt is a very good example of the contrast, where we at Human Rights Watch and other human rights groups we tend to work on all these cases. Often coming up with very similar recommendations for all of them, yet we see very different reaction from some Western countries. So standing up to the Egyptian government for their extremely dismal human rights record. Because we also saw killings of protesters there. We also saw very quick trials, which were criticized by international human rights organizations. Right. Yes, and yet we still see President Sisi being received in all the Western capitals with open arm and very little pressure, both in terms of diplomatic isolation and targeted human rights sanctions on Egypt. But this shouldn't be a race to the bottom. We don't say because you didn't do it in the case of Egypt, don't do it in the case of Iran. But it's important to keep in mind that standing up to human rights violations in Egypt gives the international community more credibility when they speak about Iran. And somebody had a really nice comment that this may be the first sort of mass protest movement which has mobilized every section of society, but primarily focused or at least sparked by. Women's rights or women's issues. Yes, and Iranian society didn't arrive 
disappear overnight. Women's rights movement in Iran worked for two decades. They launched the one million signature campaign to change discriminatory laws in Iran in 2005. Many of them faced harassment, persecution, had to leave. And as we were discussing earlier, as the avenues for legislative reform became more and more restricted, they turned their focus to raising awareness, social issues, social harm, poverty. Iran experienced its own Me Too movement. And this movement has connected decades of grievance from women's rights issues and their connection to the broader political rights, all in full circle. The uprising in Iran moves into its fourth month. Thousands are at risk of violence and even death. Authorities are intensifying their crackdown. Well, what is happening to the protests now? Are they decreasing? Street protests have slowed down. I think it's important to keep in mind that the repression is very harsh and the challenges of growing a leaderless movement in the face of repression are enormous. So is the regime kind of winning with time? Are the authorities sapping the energy out of the protests? They certainly hope that's the process, but the grievances, the anger and frustration and calls for fundamental change are at all-time high. And keep in mind that even though those street protests that are the most visible form of the protest movement are not happening as much as they did three months ago, individuals are still putting up acts of resistance. During this protest movement, several women chose to stop wearing the headscarf. And I think in the absence of the big protest movement, the battle has become about individual acts of resistance that people have been putting up for decades. Also, celebrities, public figures are continuing to call out on the government. This is not the end of it. This, For many, the way they describe to us is that this is a beginning of a new chapter. Where is Iran heading? So something has changed. I think all those people who came out in the street, the women who chose to appear without a headscarf in the street, have already created an alternative reality. Something that was not imaginable for any of us six months ago was created in the streets of Tehran. Now it's going to be a long road, probably. We fear that repression might increase. But it's also a situation that is not stable. As you just described it, we have converging crisis in Iran. The government is not able to respond to people's popular demand that ranges from political freedom all the way to economic issues. There is no way to continue but to change course. All right. Change of course. Change is the only constant. We know that, don't we? In politics as well as in science. Change and hope. Change and hope. All right, I like that. Let's end on that one. That's optimistic. It's been absolutely fabulous talking to you, Tyler. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for you, our listeners. This episode was produced by our intern, Nada Shakir. Sound design was by George Ulwir. And our recording engineer is Hamdi Aoun. A shout-out to our stars from the engagement team, our producer, Ayan Malik, and assistant engagement producer, Munira Dosari. Our executive producer, of course, is Omar Saleh, and head of audio is Ney Alvarez. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. Until next time, guys. Listener.